0: Welcome to Rewired, an eating disorder recovery podcast.
1: Hi, I'm Meg. And I'm Sophia. Each episode, we'll share experiences from our own eating disorder recoveries
0: and our lives beyond. We will also be joined by some amazing guests and experts in the field who will share their experience, knowledge and advice to give hope that recovery is possible.
1: Just to point out, Sophia and I are not medical professionals and we'll also be learning from our guests as we go. The podcast content reflects our own experiences and opinions as well as that of our guests and should not be taken as medical advice. Welcome to the Rewired podcast. Dr. G, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the podcast.
2: I'm super excited to join I... you. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Well, I actually wanted to start with a personal thank you because in my own recovery, in my own eating disorder recovery, I listened to a lot of your podcasts and found them so helpful and informative and hopeful and warm honestly and I just feel like you've brought so much light to the field and yeah just thank you for the content you've already produced and then equally for coming here and creating this with us today.
2: You're amazing that means so much to me to hear thank you so much for the work you both are doing. Honestly thank you and I was wondering if you could just start with introducing yourself. Yeah, I'd be delighted to. So um, my name is Jen Gaudiani. My patients call me Dr. G. I'm an internist who specializes in eating disorders and have done for about 15 years now. I got inspired by this because my sister had an eating disorder for many years and has been very, very generous in letting me name her as my inspiration. She's been recovered now for a long time. I chose internal medicine because I'm a big nerd and I want to take care of the whole human in the context of merging the silos that are traditionally separated, like, for instance, body and mind. And I just was so fortunate to end up being able to help grow and run um, a major hospital program that does medical stabilization for people with eating disorders for many years. And then in 2016, I started my own outpatient clinic, the Gaudiani Clinic, which is based in denver colorado but sees individuals across the united states because my partners and i are licensed in i think 42 states now and we really manage the medical side of eating disorders either problems that happen as a result of eating disorders in all body shapes and sizes we are passionately anti-diet pro haze providers Um, or medical problems that are concurrent with eating disorders that are worsened by the stress of a body going through inadequate nutrition and other eating disorder behaviors. And we work as a part of a multidisciplinary team. We absolutely love that. We have multidisciplinary teams across the United States that we're so fortunate to work with, including Carolyn coston trained coaches and uh, other wonderful coaches. And um, we really deeply believe in a feminist lens, a social justice lens, a patient autonomy centered lens. Um, And I'm really, really interested in the ways that medical trauma in the dehumanizing of individuals with mental illness allows medical providers to foist things upon patients in ways that are deeply traumatic and harmful. And I'm really interested in the ways that our society, our world's obsession with thinness and fat phobia harms everybody. So it's been just the absolute joy of my professional life to continue to learn in this this field. And um, on a personal level, I met my husband in college and we'll be together 27 years this fall. And um, my daughters are... Seventeen and fourteen, and it's the most fun I have ever had parenting. And we have a puppy who is two, who is a lot of dog. Goodness mercy, she has <laughs> a lot of energy. She was a COVID dog who really put us through our paces and continues to. And uh, a wonderful fluffy white cat. That's me,
1: mom. Well, I think um, puppies, in my experience, calm down a lot at two years old. So. Do you feel like the puppy started to sleep a little bit more? Or that was our hope. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> maybe no. it's still in our future. <laughs> okay. Yeah, maybe two, <laughs> two and a half. So, in addition to your practice, Dr. G, uh, you have written a fabulous book called Stick Enough, which Sophia and I both love. It's amazing. Even the title alone, I absolutely love. It just seems So relevant to an eating disorder population where it seems really commonplace to have this belief that I'm not sick enough. Maybe it's like relative to a diagnosis or relative to someone else you've seen or something you've seen on Instagram, even relative to yourself. Like people look at how they've been in the past and how they are now and then feel like, oh, I'm not ill enough this time around because I've been iller in the past, something like that. Even personally, in a relapse that I had, um, I didn't meet the old diagnostic criteria anorexia and I had a really hard time accepting that I had a problem again because according to old diagnostic criteria I didn't I wasn't I didn't have a problem even though I couldn't go out and eat socially I was rigid I was losing my personality I was thinking about food all the time I was really suffering but because I didn't meet a criteria I couldn't accept that I had a problem so I was wondering if this whole book that you've written about sick enough do you kind of carry a definition or a way of explaining how you see sick enough
2: yeah I I really validate the experience you had I'm so sorry it's it is universal I think in those with eating disorders no matter what the topic is um they don't feel that they are Sick enough, cold enough, in pain enough, fatigued enough, anxious enough, depressed enough, um, depleted enough, to seek help, to take care of themselves, to lean luxuriously into the arms of abundance and feel safe and welcome there. And, you know, what are the roots of that? It's so hard to say. I'm the first to note that I'm not a therapist and I'm not mental health trained, but I have lived in this world of eating disorders for 15 years as a professional. And I am really interested in the roots of it. I'm interested both as a professional and as a mom. How does this happen? I think it goes deeper than having an eating disorder. Although I think that the eating disorder is a megaphone for this particular tendency. It really, really highlights it. It really makes it louder and it carries greater consequences. Um, but I'm, I'm fascinated by the way that our society raises us in relationship to our own needs. So I think by that what I mean is there are all sorts of underlying themes that we're not consciously aware of in the way that we interact. And I certainly recognize that cultural and geographic differences will have their own lens on this. But on the whole, most people are raised in a society that is ableist, meaning that it honors and triumphs people who are in entirely able bodies. It generally promotes, and certainly in the US, it promotes the constructs of independence, doing it by yourself being tough, not having needs, not being quote unquote weak. So a lot of us were raised in households, which even if they were absolutely chock full of love and goodness and, and wellness probably received those themes from our families of origin. Um, It can happen in subtle ways and it can happen for a a myriad reasons. Um, Among them, I talk about in the book that, I learned that when I was parenting young daughters as a harm avoidant, anxious physician, I had the tendency when they would come to me with a problem to want to fix it. I saw they were distressed and I needed to make it right. So before I learned better, I would ask them a bunch of questions. You know, oh, your tummy aches? Are you hungry? Do you have to poop? Are you tired? What's going on? I would do it kinder than that, (laughs) but essentially it would be rapid fire. And I would either try to fix it for them or if I couldn't find a solution and it didn't seem to be too big of a deal, I would say, well, you're probably all right. And that's just exactly the kind of parenting that I'm talking about that seems on its face, not totally unreasonable, maybe a little brusque, but not damaging. But what I really learned from my patients in hearing their experiences of growing up and having their beautiful, sensitive selves often missed non-maliciously by their families of origin and not having their needs met was that I needed to slow way down and identify my own tendency. And again, I see this in my parenting. I see this in my professional work to have distress intolerance. I didn't want someone to be suffering in front of me. So to any extent, I wanted to make it right. And so I learned to really slow it down. And I recognized that validation and comfort are much more important than solving the problem. And so I began instead saying when they would come to me with a problem, essentially, I'm so sorry, that sounds really uncomfortable. Do you want to cuddle or do you want to talk about it? And I found that those sort of progenitor uh, concepts really dovetailed with what I later learned as I did some emotion-focused family therapy training, EFFT, whose core is validation, 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 um, and, and just sort of acknowledgement. So it wasn't about my fixing them. It was about my responding to them in a way that I hoped they would learn to respond to themselves with compassion, validation, and a general seeking of what might make me feel better. And as they've grown older, I promise this does actually come back to to patient work, (laughs) um, that's evolved and it's deepened because I continue to learn from my patients how important it is to, to, to do the following three things. Um, and I've really learned that as I see my patients doing these three things, we're getting closer and closer to a recovered state. And the three things are, the patient can say to themselves, I can identify my need, emotional, physical, et cetera. I accept that this need exists, and I won't be unkind to it. And then, I know how to meet my need. So much in those who have eating disorders have had one or more of those knocked off kilter. You know, I don't have needs because of trauma, because of disconnection of mind and body, because I've been told that I'm not allowed to have needs because I've been told that I'm too much. Or even if I say, gosh, I I, I have a need. I'm I'm upset right now. The next lesion is I'm not allowed to be upset. I can't be upset. It's weak to be upset. It's weak to be tired. It's, it's unacceptable to need X. And then even if you've gotten through the first two and you're pretty good on those, the last one is, do you know how to meet your need consistently? And do you permit yourself to do that? So as my kids have gotten older, last night was a really great example, actually. Um, we, we use the term, we use the question, what do you need right now in our family? So I got home last night and it had been a long day and I was really tired. And so I put my purse down and I hugged my younger daughter who had gotten home already from school. And she looks at my face and I was like, "You know, how was your day? And she told me a bit and she said, how, how was yours? And I was like, it was honestly hard. It was a really hard day. And she just goes, what do you need right now? And I was so proud of her for asking that. Because she asked that of herself now because I've asked that of, of her so many times. And I was like, as I was pondering it, she goes, do you maybe need a bath and a snack in the bath? And I was like, that is exactly what I need right now. Because we've done it so many times in that direction, she's able to instantly look at, at sort of suffering or, or um, fatigue and not say, why are you so tired? you're not, you didn't work hard enough today to be tired. I'm the one who worked hard enough today to be tired, you know, which is more what I heard a little bit growing up. Um, But just to meet it on its face, to acknowledge that there's a need, that that's a legitimate need and that it's a need that can be comforted. So I think as we, as, as parents, as workmates, as friends, as providers, as individuals can think about those themes we begin to undo the painful, dangerous tendency to think I'm not sick enough.
1: Yeah, wow. Just yeah, being able to validate your own life experience and not needing an external marker, like, but how am I relative to that? Or does this diagnostic criteria or what was I in the past? Like what you're experiencing right now is valid, not I need to seek, is it okay against this marker?
0: it's really incredible. And that's definitely a question I'm going to start doing like today (laughs) uh, with my daughter, because I think that's such an important thing to instill from such a young age. And I know there are uh, parents that listen to the podcast as well. So I think that they'll really benefit from that, too, because sometimes you don't know how to react or you don't know how to teach your children those skills to be able to validate their own experiences and then explore what is going to soothe them in a positive way. Um, So that's incredible, Dr. G. Thank you for Mm -hmm. that. Uh, What lucky girl you have. Okay. um yeah um so linked to that um you know I have a lot of clients who will say to me Sophia I'm you know I'm not that bad because you know the doctor said I have a heart rate of an athlete or you know I'm not really that cold I'm I can you know I'm not as bad as I used to be or I can hold down a job now all these sorts of things and you know, when I was reading your book, what really struck out to me was your house on fire analogy. And I think for those people, like that analogy would be really, really powerful. So would you be able to explain that and um, yeah, how it's kind of illustrates the importance of not just picking out kind of like one symptom and then creating like a blanket statement for your whole recovery?
2: Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you. So I was an English major in college and my specific focus was on close reading poetry. So as you might imagine, with that brain, science was really hard for me. Um, but I'm so grateful for that brain now because I love bringing metaphors to my clinical work and um, seeing if those stories can help sneak around the brain blockages and help my parent, my patients actually hear what it is I would love to share with them. So. When I meet a new patient, one of the stories that I'll often tell pretty early on in our relationship to anticipate that exact thing of like, but Dr. G, I have good grades. How could I possibly be sick? Or my potassium is normal. How could I be sick? Is to tell them this story. So we imagine in this case, I'll make her a young woman standing outside of her burning house. The fire department comes roaring up and the firefighters say, we're here to put out your fire. She says, what fire? And they're like, well, your house fire. I see the flames. I smell the smoke. I feel the heat. And she goes, oh no, if I had a house fire, it would be so hot that the sidewalk would be bubbling. And because my sidewalk's not bubbling, I couldn't possibly have a house fire. And the firefighters understand that she is dealing with considerable mental illness and they go and they put out her fire. So when my patients use that sort of, but I'm dot, 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 I will just lovingly smile at them and say, "Mm, sidewalk, not bubbling, because we have to encourage people to take the big picture. What is the big picture here? And, And what is it about meeting your needs? Coming back to that first question that causes such resistance in you. What is that? you know okay your potassium's normal what a brilliant beautiful body you've got that's kept things stable for you while you're going through all of these other behaviors and stressors that still doesn't mean your brain's not focused on eating and food what did i eat what will i eat what should i eat all day long the big picture is your house is on fire and um i think that As we help patients understand what what is it about meeting your needs that's so threatening, that you resist so much, then we can start getting to the core of it. Um, I love to remind my patients that they are whole humans. They are whole, wonderful, complex humans who have extraordinary gifts and strengths and extraordinary challenges to deal with and that's okay that is being a human being they might have a little more extreme versions of both and that's okay too um but i really encourage my patients to take the big picture and not to use that as an excuse because what is the excuse what if you accepted yeah i'm sick i don't have to be as sick as i was a year ago or five years ago, or as sick as somebody that I saw on the internet and assumed was ill. I just have to not be in alignment with my own goals and values. That's the only standard. Am I living in alignment with my own personal, completely unique goals and standards? If not, why not? And if one of those reasons is this eating disorder, then I can have a completely unremarkable weight, a completely unremarkable set of vitals, a totally unremarkable set of labs. And I am still sick enough to seek help.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I love that. And it, that's exactly you know what you're saying is that if you're not living the life that you want to live, if you're not reaching the goals that you want to do. If you, you know, do that time hop end of your life and you imagine that you haven't achieved XYZ because of your eating disorder, then you're sick enough because you deserve to live a full life. You deserve to achieve and to, you know, experience everything that you want to be able to do so yeah that's a beautiful analogy and yeah i can definitely see that english major <laughs> throughout your uh, work it's, it's <laughs> powerful though i think analogies metaphors they're so powerful powerful in
2: recovery for people so well a lot you. of individuals mistakenly think that self-deprivation and a mean voice equate to accomplishment hmm. I wanna pause and say, as a person who holds essentially all of the elements of privilege that exist, I understand that accomplishment keeps many people safe. It keeps them safe financially, it keeps them safe in myriad ways. So I don't have anything against accomplishment. I also don't have anything against completely uniquely defining what accomplishment means because I am aware of my internalized ableist lens so I want to say that accomplishment could mean, you know, today I was able to sit for an hour without pain and I was able to have a conversation with a friend, for instance, or I would, today I was able to take care of myself for an hour before I got too tired. So accomplishment, we're not talking necessarily about the brass rings of the world, but I think a lot of our patients are really driven towards accomplishment and they think that the only way to achieve that is by having that mean, driving inner voice, that extremely sharp inner critic that's often stronger than anything they've experienced externally before. And that if they drop that critic, they might just stop accomplishing altogether. In the same vein of that fear that is, you know, very, very common, if I drop my food rules everything is going to go to hell. You know, if there's not maximum structure, there will be chaos. And so um, what I like to tell my patients, and I recognize my own health privilege and not having had an eating disorder before, but I've done lots and lots of my own therapeutic work is that the only reason that I, for instance, get to have the pleasure of the accomplishments of what I do professionally is because I deeply take care of myself. And I'm unbelievably kind to myself. I wasn't hatched that way. I wasn't raised that way. It's something that I have acquired over time. So at the end of an evening, when I cannot complete another note in my chart and I'm just, I'm tired and I need to watch a show with my husband, relax, read, whatever. I don't say to myself the mean driving words. And I don't say to myself, well, why do you think you can stop working right now? Do you really think you've had such a hard day? Can you think of other people who've had a harder day than you have? Instead, I say, what I need right now is to rest. This work will get done. It's going to happen. But this is what I need right now. And I tell my patients that without a doubt, if I were as mean to myself as they are, I would never possibly have been able to do the things in the world that make me so joyful. It is only because I am kind to myself and honor what my body needs that I'm able to do what I do.
1: Do you find in your patients with that, there's a fear of the the letting go that will spiral completely out of control because in part you're restricting your food your biology fights back and it does propel you towards food it makes you think about it all the time you want it all the time you want the sweet foods all the time you watch other people eating with jealousy all the time like so the thing you don't want to do there's this burning feeling inside you propelling you towards doing it and I feel like that can be it like can compete with itself almost that you're kind of trapped between Oh, maybe I could release control but then that feeling of biology like what will happen if I do kind of thing is that You're something you find comes up right.
2: yeah it's it's such a conundrum it's such a paradox in those because we know that almost all eating disorders come with an element of restriction let's talk about the biology of restriction so you all know that I well Anybody who's read the book or listened to podcasts knows that I love to talk about the cave person brain. And the cave person brain is the aspect of our brain that evolved over millennia to save us from malnutrition. It is beautifully, exquisitely wired because that's the only reason all of us are here right now is that our ancestors evolved to survive malnutrition. This operates on a completely subconscious level. And not only does it change how our bodies work when we're exposed to inadequate nutrition at any body shape or size, but it also changes how our thinking works. And so I like to tell the story that when your ancestor and mine were walking through the cold, rocky tundra for a couple of days and they didn't get enough food and they came to the edge of a forest where there was a beehive, what they did not do was dip their finger in taste it and say, well, that was tasty. Let's move on. They knocked it down and they ended it. They completely devoured it because that was the way they were going to save their bodies for the next stretch when they might not have enough. So profound, animalistic, out of control cravings are the biological result of restriction. They are not representative of a quote unquote food addiction or a sugar addiction. Those do not exist. They are the biological product of restriction. And it doesn't just have to be restriction of food that causes that seemingly out of control initial response. It could be restriction of emotion. It's not safe for me to feel, it's not safe for me to express my needs. Therefore, I find myself binging uncontrollably at night, even if I didn't restrict my food. Any sort of restriction can lead to that binging behavior and mentality. And for those with eating disorders where control is so tightly tied in, it is terrifying. But the answer is, it's like walking into the waves at the beach and initially it's shallow and mild and then suddenly you are in the surf and the the water is churning all around you but if you keep moving through it you get to the soft swells beyond the breakers and so when somebody goes from intense restriction and rules into a state where they're working really hard to say no these rules no longer serve me I need to challenge them. I'm going to try to drop them. They're going to find themselves tumbled for a while. They're going to find themselves with ravenous hungers. And you know what? It is fine to indulge those. It is absolutely fine to eat whatever you want. It is fine to sleep as much as you want. It is fine to cry as much as you want. It is fine to eat as much as you want. As long as you do not reimpose the restriction, and you keep having faith in the biology, then you will get out through the breakers to the point where, you know, you're sort of bobbing softly up and down, the, the the roaring surf is behind you now. And when you want to eat chocolate cake, you have a nice big slice of chocolate cake, but you don't want to have the entire chocolate cake anymore. And so people have to trust that that feeling is not a brokenness within them. It is an evidence of a beautifully intact salvation-oriented biology that every human being has and that will ease back in its intensity once the body knows that it can access adequate emotional space, adequate rest, and abundant, consistent nutrition. Wow,
0: that's so so powerful. And it's definitely what we would say we've experienced as well, haven't we, On in our recovery? It was that case of just needing to eat those foods that we'd restricted um, and being, you know, sometimes kind of like obsessed with eating a particular food because we'd restricted it for so long. But now like you can have it, you can move on and it's, you know, but it's so hard, isn't it? When you're going through recovery to have that faith that that's going to be okay. But, and, you know, you do have to have that faith and to listen to other, listen to professionals like yourself and other people who have gone through the journey. Um, Dr. G, something that a lot of people uh, will often ask us or they're worried about is this idea of like their metabolism being broken. Um, and I wonder when your clients are going through those waves and you know they're really struggling, is that something they talk to you about as well? This idea that maybe their metabolism is broken or, you know, maybe they're not going to make it through through to the you know calming waves again.
2: Yeah, almost universally people believe that yeah. and fear that. The fear is fundamentally born of our fat phobic society and of the power of thin privilege in our society across most cultures in the world, unfortunately at this point. Um, And the idea that the patient feels goes like this. Um, I've been dieting for years. I'm, I'm currently eating very restrictively and my weight is not dropping. I know I'm not eating enough, but I presume that if I'm eating like this and my weight is stable, then if I ate any more than this, I'm going to have disastrous, uncontrollable, continuous weight gain. Now, as a Haze provider, a health at every size provider, I warmly welcome and love every possible body shape and size that exists. Um, I also recognize that I have within me internalized fat phobia. I know it's there. Sometimes it still emerges in my clinical work and I have to really slow down and acknowledge and repair and rededicate myself to to learning better and doing better. Um, but fundamentally, the fear of a metabolism being broken is founded on faulty science. So all of Western medicine, all of the purveyors of diet items, revolve around the following wrong idea, that metabolism, meaning how much nourishment your body needs on a daily basis to run itself, is fixed. And that if you consume more or work out less, you burn less, quote unquote, you're gonna gain. And if you consume less or burn more, you're gonna lose. While at certain extremes, this is correct, For the vast majority of people, this is completely wrong. Here's the truth. Our metabolisms are almost infinitely versatile and responsive because that is how we evolved. So that when our ancestors and now when we are in a time of want, we burn fewer calories Because we are fundamentally surviving machines and we can do extraordinary things with our bodies in order to stay well and to stay alive. So when there's fewer calories available, less nutrition available, we burn less. And the way we do that is by slowing down processes in our bodies. When there is lots of nutrition available, our metabolism speeds up. And of course, at a certain point, it, it can't go any higher. And what you consume beyond that will allow restoration of body weight, gain of body weight. Oftentimes that's welcome. Sometimes it's not. But the metabolism is extremely versatile. You know, it, you know I've, I've personally seen it range from about 500 calories a day for people who are really restricting hard to burning 3,500 or 4,000 calories a day. That's how much the human metabolism can vary and within the same individual. So when somebody is under eating and their weight is not decreasing, the reality is when they begin to eat more, they burn more and then they eat more and they burn more. And so actually patients are always startled when we go through nutritional rehabilitation together and they're nourishing more and their weight doesn't begin to rise for some period of time. It's like mind boggling for them. And even the patient who's experienced this time after time themselves, part of that eating disorder mentality is this time is going to be different this time I'm broken. I'm the only one. Um, The fact that every single one of these patients thinks I'm the only one shows that it is part of the pathology of the disease and that indeed they are not. So, you know, anorexia occurs across the entire weight spectrum. I abhor and will not use the term atypical anorexia nervosa. It is a sizist, ridiculous term. Um, So the, the fact is, is that some people with anorexia nervosa Lose weight and become emaciated. Some lose weight and do not become emaciated. Some do not lose weight. Some gain weight, all doing the same spectrum of behaviors. And what that is predicated on is just our genetic response to a given environmental stimulus. That doesn't have to do with sort of the the science of true metabolic change. That has to do with the fact that we all have different genetics. So that Somebody who has been, uh, you know, who toasts their their 95th birthday and attributes it, you know, to the whiskey uh, is very different genetically from the individual who, um, you know, fell into drinking heavily during COVID and developed severe liver failure after two years of drinking. You know, we respond differently as individuals to environmental triggers. And similarly, people will respond differently to restriction because of genetics. And we have to acknowledge it is the same disease process regardless of your body size and shape. We have to acknowledge that although those who are emaciated from anorexia get much more attention in the the literature and clinically and in the doctor's office, Nonetheless, the vast majority of people with anorexia nervosa never have an emaciated body. And so what one's body does in response to persistent or even really transient food restriction is all of us will try to gain more weight. We'll try to get back to where we were and then add some to protect ourselves from the next famine. Again, that is biology. That is biology. So that's why diets, quote unquote, don't work. People might initially lose a bit of weight. They feel very virtuous. They feel very clear headed because the virtuosity of losing weight in our society is so strongly vaunted. Um, And then they find that the weight loss slows and their weight begins to creep back up. And they think, oh, I'm at fault. I've not been strong enough. And that's what the diet industry says to try again. And this time with our new points system. but the reality is, is that it is biology. And so how exactly someone's body responds to malnutrition and then to access to calories is again gonna be contingent upon genetics. It's not personal you know, uh, virtues, it's just on genetics. So some with underweight anorexia find it's very, very hard to gain weight. Some people find that they gain weight really fast And that's what their genetics want, not because their metabolism is broken, but just that's what their genetics dictate. Some will find that, again, they've been gaining weight the entire time that they've been restricting. And when they begin to nourish again, they continue to gain weight. And the reality is really good eating disorder providers have to hold space with compassion for the reality of all of those experiences and not imply that one of them is wrong or odd, but just this is how the genetics go.
1: Yeah, I loved reading that in your book, honestly, about genetic variability. And it made so much sense to me because in thinking about the sick enough thing, if you use comparison of, but that person, this happened and with me, this didn't happen. Or, you know, like there's so many things that are different, like one person's hair might fall out, whereas another person's won't changes it differences in mood, concentration, blood work the women loss of periods or not weight loss, like you said, or not. There are so many things that people differ in how their body responds to starvation or how it protects against starvation as well. And like reading that in your book, that there is genetic variability, it seems almost simple. And it makes so much sense that of course we all have different presentations and different responses, even put through the exact same thing. Like if you fed two people the exact same amount and they moved the exact same amount, their weight would do different things if two people were the exact same weight their bodies would look different like we are just different and we all respond differently and you cannot really make that comparison and certainly you can't determine your own health or your illness compared to somebody else's based on what symptoms you're displaying compared to what symptoms they're displaying because you have different underlying genetics and you can't look at how much someone's suffering
2: yeah that's exactly it love that Um,
1: Another thing I absolutely loved uh, in my own recovery, and you mentioned it in the book, is about the Minnesota starvation experiment. Um, And you're probably explaining it much better than I will. But um, the people who don't know, there's a study where men underwent six months of starvation and experienced a lot of the same symptoms as people with eating disorders do which to me was really I don't know it felt a bit like oh I'm not broken in a way or it's not just because of my eating disorder it's not just because of me like this is a common experience even amongst people who have lost weight without having an eating disorder and then I really really took comfort in the that it was reversible that when they went through nutritional rehabilitation the symptoms better like preoccupation with food isolation irritability rigidity that kind of thing and that gave me so much hope that oh this is actually reversible like i can get better from these things but do you find that in your patients as well that the effects of starvation are reversed once the starvation is removed
2: yeah, absolutely. That study was fascinating and will, of course, never be replicated because we would consider it deeply unethical today. But a group of conscientious objectors who wished to serve their country during World War II, but who didn't feel ethically that they could fight, volunteered to be part of a starvation experiment to understand what was going on in prisoner of war camps and in concentration camps. And so a physiologist and nutritionist, Ansel Keys, gathered them in Minnesota and starved them, underfed them, and overworked them to mimic work camp conditions. And he thought he was just going to be following physiology. And it was from these studies that we got our first concerted data on slowed heart rate, slowed blood pressure, cold hands and feet, slowed digestion, worse skin, hair falling out. What he didn't expect was the psychological side, which is what you allude to, where these guys would describe being allowed there one day a week to walk into town, and they would put their faces up against the diner window and look in at people eating inside the restaurant and think, those disgusting gluttons, look at how much food they're eating. That is disgusting. That's
1: and, interesting you say that, by the way, because I would have had my hands and face up against the window thinking I wish I could be that person. I was like jealous of those people. I would have done the same sort of thing that I wouldn't have had disgust. I would have had absolute envy, burning envy.
2: Totally fair. Again, you know, those genetic differences will will show for sure. Yes. And yes, when I started being fed again, they would cut up food into tiny pieces. They would hide food in napkins. They would only want food of sort of one color or type. They acted behaviorally, psychologically, like those that we think of as having starved brains and anorexia. And so I will very often tell patients, especially if they're pretty new to their diagnosis, and it's so bewildering that much of the torment you're experiencing is not you. It isn't your mental illness, it's your starved brain. And I expect that even though the act of nourishing is so terrifying, that as you give your beautiful body and brain what it needs consistently throughout the day, some of that fierce rigidity, paranoia, anxiety, feeling like you're about to hit the ceiling every second, it will melt away. Mm -hmm. And I see Mm -hmm. this all the time with my patients who had thought that those traits were just who they are. And that's part of the overwhelm of imagining the rest of one's life with this. Like, oh my gosh, of course I'm gonna have to follow these intense rules because everything is so overwhelming. But what my patients then tell me as they emerge on the other side is, Things felt so much less chaotic when I wasn't starved and thus the, the role of the eating disorder got more minimal because it felt less chaotic in my more nourished brain. So I didn't feel the need to impose these rules to bring control to a chaotic world as much. It's this wonderful upward spiral, but you have to do such a brave trust fall and stick with it. This is not eating for two weeks and then panicking as you feel your guts start to fill up some and your body changes a bit. This is sticking with it and recognizing that those first two to eight weeks are nightmarish because things do start to change. Your numbness, your protectedness does start to thaw, but you still have a starved brain with all of the distortions and all of the misery. So it's getting on the other side of those early weeks and months of nourishing that you finally begin to accrue the benefits.
1: I honestly can relate to that so much. Like, of course, there was a lot of my sort of recovery where I was actively working on things, actively challenging things, going through treatment. And that was obviously so helpful. But equally I feel like there was a proportion of spontaneous recovery like some things just naturally got better with renourishment with nutritional rehabilitation I didn't need to work on it at all like for example eating habits I had really weird eating habits like I was embarrassed to eat in public and I couldn't stop it I felt so compelled and I could have tried all that I wanted to change it and I just felt like I couldn't yet once I was healthier eating properly it just went i had no desire to do it it spontaneously recovered i didn't even need to work on it it just went i had no need to do it
0: absolutely i'd say the same i had a client this week actually saying that she wanted to stop um but it was for her it was like heating up food throughout the meal. And Meg and I have chatted about this. This is something where we were like, oh my God, you did that? Oh, I did that too. And um, so that again, must be like one of those effects of starvation because it's so common. And she was like, right, this is my goal. I'm gonna stop heating my, you know, meals throughout um, whilst I'm eating. I said to her, you know what? It's a great goal. It's brilliant thing to concentrate and focus on and be aware of, but honestly, so much of this just goes. I can't remember ever thinking I'm gonna stop heating my food. Like so, I can't It just happened. And then one day, you know, my husband was like, Hey, you don't heat your food up anymore throughout the meal. So, yeah, so much of that is just a natural, you know, part of nourishing yourself. Dr. G, what do you, you know, in that period of time, that two weeks to eight weeks you were saying is just such a hard period. What do you, is there like any words that you say to your clients that, you know, just like consoles them? And, you know, because you, you've got such a soothing, calming, voice like do you just say something to them that you know help them
2: to get through that time? You know, I just really invite them to share with me what they're going through. I remind them that it's so well, I don't remind them I because that would be totally doctors explaining I um I share with them, I validate to them that it's so lonely to go through this because you're in your own head. It's so isolating. And to share it with the people in your home whom you know love you also exposes them to sort of the fear, the worry, the sadness themselves as they see you suffering. And so, yes, obviously the best people to share it with are those who love you. And at a certain point, you're like, oh my gosh, I cannot tell them for the fourth time today that I'm like freaking out about X, Y, or Z. And so I'll just say to my patients, um, I am somebody who loves you and who won't be harmed by or fearful of what you have to say. So to make it less lonely, tell me about it. Let me sit in the shit with you. Because if you can keep talking and knowing that I will validate how hard that is and how yucky and miserable and scary and overwhelming it is, and that it can get better, then maybe you can keep pushing forward. And I just try to shower so much love and care and validation and hope to say like what what little thing can you do can you still make some change this week this is worth it remember how much you've told me you hope for in your life this is the way towards those gates
0: yeah that's beautiful imagine that's incredibly powerful you know for your clients
1: well Dr G thank you so so much for joining us honestly appreciate it so much all the content you put out there your book the amazing work you do and now for your time with us today just thank you
2: it's been such a joy to join you both today thank you so much for having me and for the beautiful work you're putting out into the world yourselves
0: amazing thank you so much we really really appreciate it and we cannot recommend your book more um it's incredible so thank you Definitely. thank you Thank you so much for listening to Rewired and thank you to Tallulah South, our fabulous podcast editor and producer whose details can be found in the show notes. You can find me Meg on Instagram at Megzi underscore recovery
1: and me Sophia at Sophia underscore ED recovery coach. We will use this space to share some of the things which have helped us in our own recoveries but none of it should be taken as medical advice. If you're struggling please seek help from a professional. We hope you found this helpful. See you on the next episode.